This podcast is presented to you by High Desert Word Center in Barstow, California. For more information, visit hdwc.org. But I'm going to be talking to you today about miracles and the supernatural through church history. Miracles and the supernatural through church history. How many of you know that Christianity is more than just an intellectual thing? There's an intellectual element to it. There's ideas, thoughts, doctrines that we embrace. You know, there we can kind of say, well, that's mental and intellectual or whatever. But, but Christianity is so much more than intellectual or doctrinal or to some people it's kind of a philosophy of living and, and it may be all that stuff's involved, but what Christianity is supernatural and, and, and it, it is a relationship with a living God who has creative power, who's able to bring this universe into existence by simply saying, let there be. And, um, you know, we, we know that the Bible teaches, you know, all these miracles, you know, I was just in Egypt and thinking about, you know, Moses leading the people out and all the miracles that happened there. And then Jesus and, and Elijah and Paul and the New Testament, you know, is loaded with the book. But I don't know about you, but I grew up in a, in a mainline denominational church where all that was a hundred percent history is history. We believed it historically, but nobody in my group ever believed that it was for today. And um, I just remember as a little kid, because, you know, our, our group, and I, I'm not trying to be disrespectful or, or uh, denigrating in any way. I'm, I'm thankful that I learned the Ten Commandments as a little kid. I'm thankful that I learned the Sermon on the Mount and the Lord's Prayer. And... Uh, you know, I'm thankful that I learned the Apostles' Creed. You know, there's a lot of great things I learned that were a great help to my life. Um, and that information is, is, you know, certainly truth and all truth helps us. But there was a dimension that we were never exposed to. Um, we never expected God to do miracles anymore. We knew he did them in the Bible, but we didn't expect him to do them. And, you know, we would, um, and most I ever saw, like, uh, on Sunday mornings at church, they might say, well, now we're going to pray. We've got some people in the hospital. You know, Mary Smith is in the hospital. And let's all pray for Mary. God bless Mary. Be with Mary, Lord. You know, and, uh, and nobody expected God to intervene and heal her, or, you know, uh, miraculously turn the situation around. Just be with her and that type of thing. And um, so I, I just as a kid, I just remember thinking, well, they, all these miracles in the Bible, but we don't have any miracles today. Why? You know, never a mention, never an expectation. Um, And and so as a kid, without any any coaching or any instruction, I just figured, well, God just doesn't do that anymore. I I don't know why, but he just doesn't do. You know, maybe he just wants us to believe without any of those things. And um, so I just didn't know any different. So I became, without anybody telling me to, I became what's called a cessationist. And that's a fancy term. We'll talk about it later. A cessationist is somebody who believes that God used to do miracles, but just doesn't do them anymore. And and most people, even people who are like I was, would say, well, now, God could do one if he wanted to. But 
he just doesn't want to apparently very much. And uh, again, there was no no expect expectancy. You know, if, if you asked anybody, if you ever ex- most of the people in my church would say, no, never really seen anything like that happen. And and just, you know, so but it was just a period. So anyway, I get born again at, at the age of 14. A friend took me to a youth camp from another church that really preached the new birth. My church didn't really preach the new birth. They just assumed, you know, we're going to teach these things and you're going to repeat these things. And it actually had a strong Calvinistic slant. So if you were one of the chosen, if you were predestined, you would just automatically kind of slide in. And But there was never any, nobody ever said, repent, you know, turn from your sin, put your faith in Jesus now. I never heard, you must be born again. It was just, I don't, I don't know. But anyway, so I went to a, actually as a Methodist youth camp and, and they taught the new birth. They, uh, they had all these kids together and they said, you know, hey, it's not enough just to be religious. It's not enough to just be in church. You need to, you need to repent. You need to put your faith in Jesus. And they taught really having a relationship with God. So at the age of 14, that sounded good to me. I went down to the front, knelt at the altar, prayed and accepted Jesus. And, and I believe that's when I was born again, but I didn't, I didn't grow in that in any way, shape, or form. And then at the age of 18, a friend invited me to a meeting that I tried the best in the world to get out of that. And I, I even lied and made up excuses that weren't even true to try to get out of that meeting because I didn't know what, I didn't want to go to some religious meeting. Because to me, church was the most boring thing in the world. And, uh, you know, I, I didn't want to go to church on a Tuesday night. Dear heaven, honestly, I didn't even want to go to church on a Sunday morning. But, um, so, but he finally just kept badgering me. And even though I lied and said, no, I'm busy, I can't. He still called me the same day and said, you know, I sure love you to come tonight. And I, okay. I just kind of did it to get him off my back. So I go into this service at that church and, uh, it's Charles and Francis Hunter. And, um, Boy, this is so different than anything I'd ever seen. And uh, people, you know, one thing, it wasn't anything weird. People were raising their hands. And I thought, that's weird. I, you know, it wasn't offensive or anything. I just thought, that's just different, you know, and that's okay. And and But people, what what really caught my attention was people were happy to be in church. And, 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 and they weren't just, you know, like in my churches reading the words, you know, and, and grimly and all soberly and all that. People just, they, they had their faces to heaven, seemed to be this kind of radiance and, and all that. And I thought, wow, that's really cool. And saw some things happen that I didn't understand what they were, but I thought, wow, that's different. And, and then they said, everybody with back problems stand up. And so I stood up. I, I played competitive tennis as a kid and, um, through college and all that. And, um, but had a back injury that caused me a lot of pain in the lower right back, uh, my lower right side on the back and down into the right leg, back of the right leg. And so I stood up. And um, long story short, they, he, the guy went out and picked out about five or six people from the crowd. I was the first one he picked. He had us all line up down front. Boy, I'd never seen anything like this in my church. This was foreign. Um, and um, man, this guy's put his hand very lightly on my on my forehead, barely, barely touched me. I mean, I know for an absolute, he didn't push me in any way. If I'd felt somebody pushing me, I would have totally, you know, I would have been a real turnoff. And um, uh, but his hand was just there and he started praying in this other language. And um, all of a sudden I feel this, it felt like warm heat and almost kind of like an electricity feel, but not a painful, you know, not like a painful electricity. 
And then it was almost kind of like warm honey. And it's just, it's hard to describe, but this, this started just going through my body. And I, I, I thought, man, I'm going to lose consciousness here. And I thought, well, I'm going to take a step back. And, and, and he just gently did no pushing, but just took a step forward. And, and I took two steps back. And, and, and that's about the last I remember. And, um, I was getting up off the floor and he said, young man, he said, uh, bend over and touch the floor. Well, he didn't know that. This guy's from out of state. I didn't know him. He didn't know me. He didn't know that really with this injury that I'd had, I could maybe about bend down to my knees and uh, I could bend further. But boy, if I bent further than my knees, I know I'm getting that sharp shooting pain down the back right leg. And uh, but he says, bend over and touch the floor. I bent over and put both palms on the floor. No pain. Listen, I'd been in pain for two years. My parents had sent me to three doctors. Um, my family doctor, he did a bunch of ultrasound stuff. I, they'd sent me to an osteopath for all kinds of adjustments. Uh, they'd sent me even to a kidney specialist. To, they ran diagnostic stuff to see if I had a problem with my kidney. And basically, all the doctors said, we really can't find anything wrong with you. You're just going to have to live with this. you know." And um, But God healed it in one second. And... Um, I remember thinking, I remember thinking, wow, my church has not told me some things about God. (laughs) And I'll be honest with you, I went through a season where I was pretty mad at my church. Because how could you not tell me this? And, And later I realized, well, they can't tell me this because they didn't know that. And so I got over being mad and felt more compassion. And uh, but driving home that night, um, my friend, the the guy that you know pressured me into going that night, he said, uh, Tony, he said, because uh, he knew what had happened to me and healing and everything. And he said, uh, Did you receive the Holy Spirit tonight? And I said, John, I said, I, I don't really know what that question means. And um, now, see, I grew up in a church. We we talked about the Holy Spirit all the time. We sang the doxology. Anybody know the doxology? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creature. See, until I was about 17, I thought they were saying preachers. I, I, I was kind of slow on this stuff. And, and about age 17, I realized, they're not saying preachers, they're saying creatures. I'd been singing it wrong my whole life. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. So see, intellectually, doctrinally, I knew all this about the, the, I didn't, couldn't really explain it, but I knew there was a Trinity, and I knew Jesus, and I knew the Holy Spirit, and the Father. So, but when he said, did you receive the Holy Spirit? I thought, well, I, I, John, I don't really know what that means. And he says, well, you know that power that went through you? I said, yeah. He says, well, that was him. That was him. He's a person. He's not just a theory or a doctrinal statement. He, 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 he said, did you receive him, you know, in power into your life? I know he healed you, but, you know, are you in, are you making him a home now? You know, is he dwelling and, 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 and resting upon you? And I said, well, you're going to have to explain this to me a little bit. I, I don't really. So we got to his house and they opened the Bible. They started in Acts chapter 2. The day of Pentecost, and they went to Acts chapter 8, Samaria, the Holy Spirit came upon them. Uh, Acts chapter 9, 
uh, Saul of Tarsus, you know, uh, they laid hands on him and he received the Holy Spirit. And, and Acts 10, Cornelius' house. And of course, in many of these cases, it talks about they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with tongues. Acts 9, it says, you know, Saul received the Holy Ghost and then later he said, I thank my God I speak with tongues more than y'all. And uh, he must have been Southern, you all. And... Um, <laughs> And then Acts 10 and Cornelius, the, the, they, they saw that the Holy Spirit had come upon them because they heard them speak with tongues. And Acts 19, uh, Ephesus, Paul said, did you receive the Holy Spirit? They said, well, we don't know if there is a Holy Spirit. So he explained things and then he laid hands on them and, and they, they spoke in other tongues and prophesied. And that's all I needed. Uh, he, and, and my friend John, he just said, see, that's still for today. See, nobody ever told me that. See, I thought there was this huge disconnect, you know, that in the Bible days, God did things one way. But now, 2,000 years later, I don't really know why, but God doesn't do things that way anymore. See, because I'd never seen it. I'd never experienced it. I never heard it. There's just this now, to me, Christianity was just kind of a philosophical, you know, uh, some intellectual stuff, but no power, no presence, no anointing, you know, all these healing things, you know. So anyway, that was that happened on June the 9th, 1977. And um, a couple of years later, I, my, we, my wife and I married and uh, we went out to Rama Bible Training Center and uh, ended up, you know, being in ministry and started traveling. And over the course of my travels, um, I started visiting places that had to do with church history. And uh, if we can go to that next slide, um, I don't share this to say, oh, look at all the places I've been. But but I, I started to go at place. These are all places I've been um, over the years. And uh, my wife and I have led like five. We've led five tours to biblical sites in Greece and Turkey. So like some of the Ephesus, I've been to Ephesus seven times and Athens, I've been there three or four times and Corinth three or four. And uh, just last year I preached on Cyprus and a uh, year before I preached in Malta. Last year I preached in Egypt. You know, these are all biblical sites. And um, a lot of these places are where a lot of healings and miracles happened. You know, Jesus did things, you know, miracles throughout Israel and Paul in a lot of the places, Ephesus and Athens, Corinth and all that, you know, Paul and different apostles had different healings and miracles. Cyprus, you know, that was the first place that Paul and Barnabas went on their very first missionary journey. And a sorcerer or a magician opposed Paul. And uh, Paul just said, the Lord make you blind. Now, normally, God's not making people blind. This is just a temporary couple day thing. But it was to shut the guy up. Because he was opposing the gospel, but it was a sign and a wonder, you know, and all these things. Malta, um, that's where uh, Paul got bit by the poisonous snake and he shook it off and suffered no harm. And then he laid hands on a bunch of people on that island and got them healed. So, I, you know, in traveling to all these biblical sites, you know, I'd always be reminded, well, well God did miracles here. God did miracles in all these places. You know, the miracles he did in Egypt to get the children of Israel out. And then, in the course of my travels, our next slide, I also, over the travels over the years, I got to go to places like John Wesley's house and 
John Calvin's church, a bunch of Martin Luther sites. Zwingli led the Reformation in Switzerland the way Luther did in Germany. John Huss was a, a very early reformer that was burned at the stake. He was a hundred years before Luther. George Whitfield, you know, Billy Sunday, Smith Wigglesworth. We just talk about him on the way in. I've been to his house, his grave, his church. Uh, not church, but the mission building that he and Polly worked at there in England. William Branham's grave, C.S. Lewis. Billy Graham's, you know, Billy Graham's recent church history, but he is quite a historical figure. So over the years, though, I just started falling in love with church history because of all the biblical places I got to go to, because of all the um, uh, sites like these that I was able to. I just started falling in love with history, and I wanted to learn more about you know, how these other people of other generations, centuries past, you know, how did they process their faith? How did they live out their faith and what kind of, ex- I know what kind of experiences I've had with God, but, but what was their journey with God like? How many of you know we can learn something from people in other, other generations? So I did something about three years ago. Um, actually it was after, right after my wife and I got to visit several places connected to Martin Luther in Germany. The castle where he translated the New Testament, uh, monasteries where he lived and different churches where he preached. And I just said, I said, Lisa, I said, I can't take it anymore. More. I said, I've got to learn more about this. And I went ahead and did a master's degree in church history from Liberty University. Now, if you know anything about Liberty, it's a wonderful university. It's based in uh, uh, Virginia, um, associated with Jerry Falwell and that type of thing. But it's not a Pentecostal school. It's a Baptist school. And uh, so I went into it. I thought, well, I can learn a lot about church history. But I had this idea. I thought, well, I'm not going to learn anything about the Holy Spirit because they probably are going to, you know, some. how many of you know some groups don't appreciate charismatic things, you know? And um, so I thought they'll probably kind of criticize, you know, Pentecostal things or charismatic things or whatever. But I'll, still, I'll just learn what I can. But you know what my experience was? Exactly the opposite. In all these courses... Uh, they were celebrating and really highlighting these Pentecostal-like experiences all through church history. And um, and they were drawing attention to, yeah, you know, this guy in the third century, he had miracles. And this guy in the fifth century, you know, there were healings. He was praying for people and they were getting healed. And I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, wait a minute, I'm at a Baptist university and they're they're telling me all these things. And I, I kept expecting it. It took two and a half years to get through this program, about 25, 30 hours a week of study and research and writing. And I kept waiting for them to slam the Pentecostals. They never did. And they kept, they kept, in all these courses, they kept drawing attention to the, to the supernatural side of um, how things happened through church history. And see, a lot of people grow up thinking that God did miracles like in the New Testament church, and then when John died, when the last apostle died, then all miracles stopped and things like that. You can, a person cannot honestly study church history thoroughly and even come close to coming to that uh, belief. So let's look at the next slide here. D.L. Moody, he was a great preacher in the late 1800s. He was the Billy Graham before there was a Billy Graham. And uh, he was one of the early great American evangelists. And he said there's not a denomination in the world that did not spring from revival. 
And, you know, the word revival, that eh, means different things to different people. Uh, you know, any church can just say, okay, we're going to have a revival. But that doesn't mean that God's necessarily doing anything. They're just doing more services or, you know, they're trying to stir things up, which might be good or whatever. But, but when, when we're talking about revival, we're talking about not a man-made revival. We're talking about a God-breathed revival where God himself, you know, visits and, and it's, it's kind of, um, paradoxical because in one sense, how many of you know God's everywhere and He's omnipresent and all that? But there are times when His, Pastor Bernie used this term earlier today, His glory, you know, is, is, is especially emphasized. And God just kind of, He shows up and He shows off. And, uh, in kind of a special way. Uh, we don't want to discount the fact that God's always with us, that He's always present. But sometimes He seems to be in stronger manifestation. He He tends to be demonstrating His presence and His power more. And and that's what D.L. Moody was talking about when he said there's not a denomination in the world that didn't spring from revival. And he's talking about... And th- here's other terms that are used just to give you some other... We'll use these terms. I'm sure they have their distinct meanings, but just generally speaking, revival, renewal, outpourings, awakenings, a move of God. Sometimes you just hear a movement, you know, uh, that type of thing. And that just means that, that God is really emphasizing something special at a particular time because his people need that at that moment. And uh, but but when you really study all the different groups that are out there, um, what, here's what you find is that basically God moves in a certain way. And some people jump on that and they get excited about it. And, um, and they flow with God in that area. And then what happens is over time, it might be, it might be five years, it might be ten years, it might be, might be twenty, thirty years. But over time, they lose that, that initial thrust of what God is doing. And they start getting organized and they start getting institutionalized and they tend to lose the flame, the fire, the passion. And, and what they end up with is a structure. And, 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 and then God, if he wants to do something in the earth, he has to find somebody else to do it through because the other group that he, he worked through has gotten so institutionalized or intellectualized. They've quit being sensitive to what he is doing by his spirit. And you see that with group after group after group. Many groups that you would think, yeah, I went to one of their churches. I was dead as a doornail. But if you go back 50 years, if you go back 100 years, when they were first starting, you know what? They started in a move of God. They started in a revival. We're going to see that uh, as we move through this today. Our next slide is this kind of tells us why it's important to study history. How many of you, let me just be real honest with you, how many of you found history boring in school? Anybody find history boring? A few have. Um, you know, um, I guess I didn't mind history so much because I was so bad at algebra and chemistry. Um, I literally, I kid you not, I, when I was in high school, I got a D plus in algebra and I got a D plus in chemistry. And you don't know how hard I worked for that plus. 
my brain just didn't get that. But my brain did pretty good with English and history. But I know different people are different and things like that. But here's why it's important to study history. History merely repeats itself. It has all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. Sometimes people say, here is something new. Uh, but it's actually old. Nothing is ever truly new. Do you know what happened when I got healed that night, um, June 9th, 1977? When I got healed that night and felt, tangibly felt the power of God, do you know what? I, I, I said, wow, this is new. It wasn't new. It was new to me, but it wasn't new to God. And so it depends on, but, but Solomon is saying, really, there's nothing new in, in the absolute sense. It might be new to us. And he goes on to say, uh, what, what is happening now has happened before. And what will happen in the future has happened before. Because God makes the same things happen over and over again. So there's a lot of truth in what Solomon is saying here. And not only does God kind of do the same thing over and over again, but can I tell you what? People do the same thing over and over again. God does something and people mess it up. That's typically the, that's, that's the pattern of revival. Alright? And, um, so, but let's look biblically. Our next slide kind of gives us what I'm going to call a spectrum of supernatural activity. These are the things the New Testament teaches us that can and should be a part of what happens in the body of Christ. Uh, and they, it gives kind of from different angles and different perspectives, but Romans 12 talks about prophecy, serving, teaching, exhortation, leading mercy. First Corinthians 12 gives us a list, uh, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, faith, uh, gifts of healings, working of miracles, prophecy, all these. And those three, uh, those, those revelation gifts, or, or I'm sorry, those gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 can be divided into three categories. Um, uh, revelation gifts, things that reveal something, like word of knowledge, word of wisdom, discerning of spirits. Um, uh, vocal gifts, those that say something, like uh, prophecy, um, tongues, interpretation of tongues, and then what are sometimes called the power gifts, which would be special faith, gifts of healings, and working of miracles. So when the Holy Spirit operates, he, He's typically, according to this list, He's either revealing something, He's saying something, or He's doing something. And some, many times, some of these gifts work together, like, you know, word of knowledge might work together with gifts of healings. And so, I, I don't want to get, the purpose of this is not to te- micro-teach the, the specific things, but just understand that when the Holy Spirit operates, these are some of the things that He will do and say and reveal to help us have the fullness of the blessings of God. And then 1 Corinthians 12, 28, apostles, prophets, teachers, miracles, gifts of healings, helps, so on and so forth. And then Ephesians 4.11, what we sometimes call the fivefold ministry gifts, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. So though that is biblically, I mean, you can just see if you believe in the New Testament, then you believe that these things... Now, some people will say, and we'll talk about this later, some people will say, well, God does some of those things today, but no, some of those things He doesn't do anymore. 
We're going to talk about that later. But let, let's go to the next slide because I want you to understand what we just read. What we just read, those four different scriptures, those aren't the only things the Holy Spirit does. He does other things too. Conviction. You know, when people hear the Word of God preached and they come under conviction. Have you ever felt conviction from the Holy Spirit? Now, I'm not talking... See, some people don't know the difference between conviction and condemnation. The Holy Spirit doesn't condemn us. Satan condemns. The Holy Spirit convicts. Um, the new birth. How many of you know the Holy Spirit? He's the one who brings us about the new birth and causes us to be born again. Assurance. Have you ever doubted your salvation? You know, and then the Holy Spirit says, hey, you're mine. The Bible says the, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Um, the infilling, empowerment for service, boldness, uh, divine comfort, peace. You know, sometimes we need peace in our life. We need comfort. You know, something bad happens, you know, something distressing happens, and the Holy Spirit just comes in and comforts us. And then divine guidance, you know, He, He leads us, those that are led by the Spirit of God. And then, uh, the cultivation of character. How many of you know the Holy Spirit helps us bring forth godly fruit? In our life, the love, joy, peace, so on and so forth. And then even compassion, mercy, and things of that nature. Those are all very, very important. So here, the reason I'm wanting to kind of give you this, uh, both the, the four scriptures from the last slide and then all these lists of other things is just to let you know the Holy Spirit really wants to be involved in our relationship with God. You know, this is really the age of the Holy Spirit. The Father is in heaven. Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. The Holy Spirit has been sent to do all these things in us and for us. And I'll tell you what, I, I, I don't want to limit the Holy Spirit. I need all the help I can get. How about you? Somebody said, do you need the Holy Spirit to go to heaven? And somebody said, honey, you need the Holy Spirit to go to Walmart. You know, um, so... We need the Holy Spirit for everything. And, um, and, and, and here's one thing I don't want to do. I don't want to elevate one and ignore the rest. You know, I don't want to just say, for example, get obsessed with miracles and then, for, well, that's great, but, but I also want Him to be my comforter. I want to be my guide. I, I, I want everything that the Holy Spirit has to offer. I love this next statement by, uh, um, uh, Reinhard Bonnke. He said, Christianity is either supernatural or nothing at all. You take the Holy Spirit out of Christianity and you, you are left with a philosophy. You are left with a theology or a theory or an intellectual set of information. And thank God for the information, but, but the Holy Spirit is the one who makes it all alive for us. You know, in, in the spirit of... Um, not wanting to elevate one expression of the Holy Spirit above another. Kenneth Hagin said this. Um, oh, I miss Brother Hagin's. That's my bad. Um, we'll get to this slide in just a minute. Kenneth Hagin said, uh, he said, the inward witness is just as supernatural as guidance through visions and so on. It's just not as spectacular. Many people are looking for the spectacular and missing the supernatural that is right there all the time. So here's what, here's what really happens. If you, um, 
If we can go on to the next slide again. If you decide, well, I just don't think God does certain things today because I haven't experienced them. You know, when I was 18 years old and went to that meeting that night, I had never experienced healing. So as far as I was concerned, it didn't exist anymore. But just because you've never experienced something doesn't mean it doesn't exist. I've never experienced the North Pole, but I think it exists. You know, I've never experienced Jupiter, but it exists. But what some people do is they want to go through these gifts, these lists that, you know, the Bible has, and they want to randomly select... Well, we think this is for today, but we think that's not for today. We think that, and, and, you know, they want to take, do you ever write a paper in school and your teacher took a red pen and just edited and marked out and stuff? And uh, do we really have the right to edit the Bible? Do we have the right to take our red pen and say, well, Holy Spirit, you can do this today, but we don't think you can do that today or whatever. But see, that's if, if you if you are what's called a cessationist, this is the kind of thing you end up with. And um, so you end up with a really what I would call a stripped down version of Christianity. Let's look to the next slide here. Uh, there's that statement by Kenneth Hagin. I just got that turned around. Many people are looking for the spectacular and missing the supernatural that is right there all the time. Next slide. I just want you to have kind of an understanding of what some of the categories can be. An atheist, what do they say? Oh, there is no God. Can I tell you something? I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. I just don't have enough faith to be that. To me, it's just easier to believe that there's a God who created everything. I saw the sunrise this morning from Pastor Bernie and Janice's back porch. I, I don't think that happened by accident. An atheist, but an atheist says there is no God. A deist says, well, yeah, there is a God who created everything, but he's not really personally involved in any of our lives. Um, do you know what? Thomas Jefferson was kind of a classic deist. And do you know what Thomas Jefferson did? You know, I appreciate politically, you know, he's one of our founding fathers. But he believed that there was a God who was a creator, but he did not believe there was a God who did miracles. And, and so here's what he did. He took the Bible, he took the New Testament, and anything that Jesus said that was like moral, like blessed are the peacemakers, that was all good. Anything that Jesus said that was kind of moral teaching or philosophy, you know, he kept it in. But any time Jesus walking on water, he literally took a razor blade and cut that out. Or Jesus multiplying the loaves and the fishes, and he cut that out. And so Thomas Jefferson ended up with an edited Bible that had all the philosophy of Christianity, but none of the miracles of Christianity. And so he would be considered, that's a deist. They say, yeah, God, he created everything. But anything about God revealing himself to us through miracles, supernatural things, you know, uh, he would have believed that Jesus probably died, but he wouldn't have believed that Jesus was resurrected. See, anything, anything supernatural, he had to get rid of. And that's what a deist is. A cessationist is somebody who says, well, no, everything that the Bible says is true. Jesus did all those miracles, and Paul and the New Testament church had all those miracles. They just don't happen today. What, what are called the sign gifts. 
the, the more the healings and the miracles and the tongues, things that would be a supernatural sign. Well, that part just doesn't happen today. But a continuationist is somebody who says, hey, no, all the gifts remain. You know, God hasn't stopped any of the things. Uh, if, if Jesus did it in the Gospels, Jesus will do it today. If, if the, if the early church had it, you know, we, we can potentially have it today as well. So let's pop to the next slide. Here's something to understand, you know, so that it does, I don't want it to bother you that some people don't believe certain things and all, because there have always been people that don't believe certain things. You know, there's always been unbelievers. And even in, even in Jesus' day, you know, you hear about the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees, Acts 23.8, says there is no resurrection or angels or spirits, but the Pharisees believe in all of these. So the Sadducees would have been what we'd call theologically liberal. They, well, they believe in the intellectual side, but they don't believe in the supernatural side. But the Pharisees were kind of the theological conservatives, and they said, no, we believe in, in the resurrection, we believe in supernatural, angels, demons, all that type of thing. The message version translates that. Uh, Sadducees have nothing to do with a resurrection or angels or even a spirit. If they can't see it, they don't believe it. How many of you know there's people like that today? If they can't see it, they don't believe it. What does this teach us? There's nothing new under the sun. History just keeps repeating itself. But Pharisees believe it all. So that's interesting. Let's talk about another side of this. Go to the next slide. Do you remember when Jesus sent out his disciples? And what did he tell them to do? He told them, you know, heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out demons and so on. And and you remember how the disciples came back from that assignment? They were rejoicing. What were they rejoicing about? You remember what they were? They said, even the demons are subject to us through your name. See, that was something that was really awesome to them. They thought that was really, really cool. And so Jesus, you know, we would think that Jesus said, yeah, demons are subject demons. Yeah, we're, but you know what Jesus said? He, he said, uh, he said, give you the full, he said, behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall by any means hurt you. So he was reinforcing the idea that through the name of Jesus, we have authority over the devil. But you know what? He then brought a word of balance, a word of correction. He said, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Can I tell you something? When I first got filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke in other tongues, there was a good period of time where I was way more excited about tongues than I was about Jesus. Are you listening to me? I, I was more excited about my back being healed than I was about Jesus. I kind of had that same thing that, you know, if we're not careful, we'll be at a certain level maturity wise where we get our priorities out of whack. You know, Jesus said, yeah, it's great that you have authority over demons, but I don't want that to be your main celebration. I want you to celebrate that you have a relationship with the Heavenly Father. You have a home in heaven. 
So as we talk today about all these miracles and things that have happened through church history, I really don't want you to get excited about miracles. I want you to get excited about Jesus. Okay? Because you'll, you know, people can get, they can almost get superstitious chasing after, you know, external things. But if you, if you get Jesus, you get everything He has, which includes the miracles. If you go chasing after miracles, you might get some bogus stuff somewhere in the process. So anyway, um, here's what we are commanded to do. Our next slide. Uh, we are commanded to do what? To preach the gospel. We are commanded to make disciples, to worship God, to love one another, to serve one another, and so on. We have to stay, as much as I thank God for the supernatural, uh, we need to remember our prime directive, our primary assignment is, is the gospel and Jesus Christ and, and connecting with people, ministering to them, and so on. Here's what Jesus said. Our next slide, Mark 16. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. See, that should always be our number one thing. We're going to share good news with people. What is the good news? That God loves us so much that He sent Jesus to die for our sins. Jesus shed His blood for our forgiveness. He's been raised from the dead so that we could be forgiven and be made right with God. That's the good news. Preach that to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be what? Saved. He who does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will follow those who believe. Do you remember what some of those signs were? They'll lay hands on the sick. They'll recover. Uh, cast out demons. Um, what else were they? I don't remember right offhand. What's that? Drink any deadly thing. It won't harm you. All those type of things. Um, cast out demons. Speak with new tongues. Take up serpents. Drink any deadly thing. It will not hurt them. Lay hands on the sick and they will recover. And notice the next verse. And they went out and did what? They pre- always put the word first. Always put the gospel first. We are not magicians. We're not just trying to do tricks to impress people. We're preaching the gospel. It's the truth. They preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through accompanying signs. Notice the the signs followed the preaching of the gospel. Don't ever put the signs first. Put the preaching of the gospel. What are you putting first when you put the preaching of the gospel first? Jesus. We put Jesus first. The signs follow. I like to say it this way. Signs follow believers. Believers don't follow signs. All right. Uh, let's, um, if you could skip a couple, go to the first slide, Josh, that has a person's picture on it. Uh, it's probably about three away. When we come back, we are going to start. We're going to take a little break here. I'm going to take you through pretty much 1900 years of church history. And I'm going to show you, we'll, we'll do it very quick. It's not going to take 1900 years to do it. I'm going to pick a couple people from each century and we're going to talk to you about how miracles never stopped after the last apostle died. Miracles never stopped. See, some people say, well, when John, the last apostle died, then miracles stopped. Other people say, well, once people finally got a Bible, 
you know, once all the Bible came together and they then miracles stopped and things like that, you're going to see so convincingly that all these great, these are great legends, um, phenomenal, wonderful men of God through the ages. Uh, they continued to report healings, miracles, signs and wonders all through up to the present hour. So let's take a, what, five-minute break? All right, if you want to migrate toward your seats. In my opinion, what we're about to do is the most part of this seminar. You're going to meet brothers in the Lord, a few sisters that you didn't even know you had. How many of you know it's going to be amazing to get to heaven and find these people and, you know, when I study these people, they lived in a, a world. How many of you feel like our world, like in America here today, is a little bit hostile to the gospel? Yeah. Okay, multiply that times 20. And you're in the first century, you're in the second century. You know, we're talking a period where they were burning Christians at the stake. They were throwing Christians to the lions. You know, and all they had to do to not experience that was just curse Christ. Most of the emperors would, um, and, and the persecution wasn't continual. It was episodic and local in different areas. And uh, But there were times where they would tell you, you know, curse Christ, renounce Christ, and you can live. And there's a whole bunch of people that said, no, heaven's, heaven's a lot better than here anyway. And I'm not going to deny Jesus. And uh, so most of you, you know, you read the book of Acts and it takes you to about, um, what, 65 A.D. And um, after Paul died and all the all the original apostles, the original 12, um, including some others like Paul and Timothy and Luke and they were all put to death for their faith. The only one of the original apostles that did not die a martyr's death, who died a, a natural death, was John. I was at his tomb just in August of last year, right outside of Ephesus. And um, but but one of um, John's personal disciples was a guy named Polycarp, and Polycarp uh, received a letter from this other guy named Ignatius. Ignatius was the bishop or the pastor of the church of Antioch, you know, a few generations after Paul had been there. And um, Ignatius was arrested for his faith, and they took him all the way from modern-day Turkey to Rome for execution. And while he was being transported to Rome, he wrote seven letters. One of them was to Polycarp, who was a pastor up in Smyrna. And um, one of the letters he wrote was to the Christians in Rome. He, he sent the letter ahead of him, and you know what he, he begged the church at Rome to do? He said, don't get in the way of my martyrdom. Don't do anything to interfere. Don't try to appeal my case. Don't try to break me out. He said, I'm coming to die for Jesus. And they had a different mentality. To them, to die for Jesus was the greatest honor. That put a seal of authenticity on their faith and their testimony. And one of the things that Ignatius wrote to Polycarp, it's an interesting phrase. He said, ask for the invisible things. 
Do you know how much of our prayers are for visible things? Lord, I want this. I want, you know, we ask for material things. Nothing wrong with material things. But he told, he told Polycarp, ask for invisible things so that they may be, may be made manifest to you in order that you may lack nothing and abound with all spiritual gifts. These guys didn't believe that the gifts died with John. They didn't believe the gifts ceased existing when the last apostle died. These guys knew the apostles. And, um, and, and he was encouraging him, exhorting him. You know what he was saying? He's saying, press into the things of the Spirit of God. Keep hungering for spiritual, supernatural, invisible things so that you can abound with all spiritual gifts. Did you know there are people who are, you know, very, very, they're wealth materialistically, they're wealthy, but spiritually they're very poor. Yes. One of the popes one time was giving a tour of the Vatican. I don't know if you've been to the Vatican or not. I've been to the Vatican, to St. Peter's Basilica, the, the Vatican Museum, the art in there is. And, uh, but was, one of the popes was giving a tour of all the wealth and the art and, and these priceless accumulations of objects to um, a certain minister. And the Pope said, uh, he said, well, nobody can say, uh, he said, the church sure can't say silver and gold have I none anymore, can they? And this minister said, no, but the problem is we can't say in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk either. So I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having material things, but but Ignatius was telling Polycarp, ask for invisible things so that you can abound with all spiritual gifts. Our next slide is Justin Martyr. Uh, Justin was another great, uh, you know, early church uh, father. And notice he died in 165. So, again, we're talking a hundred years after Paul's death is when this guy died. Martyr was not his last name, by the way. He, he is Justin. He became a martyr, and that's why they call him that. Notice what he said. For the prophetic gifts remain with us even to the present time. And he said, now it is possible to see among us men, women and men who possess gifts of the Spirit of God. He said, some are also receiving gifts, each as he is worthy, illumined through the name of this Christ, for one receives the spirit of understanding, another of counsel, another of strength, another of healing, another of foreknowledge, another of teaching, and another of the fear of God. We move on to another early church father, and uh, this guy, he's actually based in France, modern day France. And uh, you remember the whole Mediterranean world, um, you know, you have Israel and you go south and west and you have all of North Africa. You go north and you have today what is uh, Lebanon, Syria, on up into Turkey. And then you keep going across north and you come to Greece and then Italy and then France and Spain and so on. So you've got this whole Mediterranean world that is is receiving the gospel. And so Irenaeus uh, was based in France because the gospel spread right up across the, the Mediterranean. He died in 202. He said his disciples 
receiving grace from Him, do in His name perform miracles so as to promote the welfare of other men. Some drive out devils. Others have foreknowledge of things to come. They see visions and utter prophetic expressions. Others still heal the sick by laying their hands upon them and they are made whole. Moreover, the dead even have been raised up and remained among us for many years. And notice what Irenaeus says. It is not possible for us. uh, It is not possible to name the number of the gifts which the church has received from God. Irenaeus was from France. As we go through this, I'm going to point out to you some of these different people that were based in modern-day France. I'm going to be doing this seminar in France in, let me get my month right, um, October is when I'll be doing this in France. And um, France today is one of the most spiritually dark places on earth. Um, you know, they're, they're, did you know there are more Christians in Africa today than there are in the United States? Um, Europe is is probably it's it today. Europe is the dark continent spiritually. Now we believe and trust it's going to change. We have really good Bible schools flourishing right now in Nice, France, and in Paris. Um, and and they would be upset if I was talking about how dark France is because they're believing God for revival and light. I'm believing with them, but um, you know, just the 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 humanism, the atheism, the the secularism that that is there is really rampant. They've that nation has really turned their back on the gospel. Most of Europe has, but um, anyway. So we're I'll be mentioning to you certain people that were based in France. Um, because we're trusting for another big move of God there to resurrect a lot of things. After Irenaeus, we have another slide. A guy named Tertullian. Anybody, have you ever heard of Tertullian? I know these names are so unfamiliar to most Christians, and yet their lives were so, so dynamic, so dramatically impacting for God. Let me ask you if you've ever heard this term, Trinity. Did you know that the word Trinity is not in the Bible? This is the guy that came up with the term Trinity. Now, that don't be discouraged about the Trinity. The concept of the Trinity is found all through the Bible. He's just the guy that came up with a single term to capture the concept that was taught everywhere about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and how the, that in, in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is one God who exists eternally in three persons, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And Tertullian was one of the great early church leaders. And um, I'm pretty sure he was from Carthage. He was, we have a whole bunch of really powerful early church fathers from Africa. The northern Africa across Egypt and what today is Libya and Algeria and uh, Morocco and Tunisia. Uh, many great early church fathers were, were African. And um, Tertullian, by the time he comes around, the, a lot of the church had gotten real institutional. Do you know what I mean by institutional? They'd gotten formal. They'd gotten ritualistic. Um, and, and Tertullian was one of these guys that saw... A, what we would call today, it was a charismatic renewal. 
in the early church. And he recognized it and he embraced it. We'll talk about that group in a minute. But Tertullian said about, he was really talking about this group that was having a charismatic outbreak way back then. And he said, we recognize and honor the prophecies and recent visions which had been promised equally. We also regard the rest of the powers of the Holy Spirit as tools of the church to whom the Spirit was sent, administering all the outstandingly impressive gifts to each, to every one, just as the Lord distributes to each. Therefore, blessed ones, whom the grace of God awaits, when you come up out of that most holy bath, what do you think the holy bath was? As baptism. When you come up out of the most holy bath, which brings about new birth, and for the first time, raise your hands within your mother, the church, with your brothers, ask the Father, ask the Lord to make you subject to the riches of grace, the distribution of the gifts. He was saying, when you get baptized, you know, when you come up out of that water, throw your hands up in praise and worship to God. And you know what he's saying? Ask God for the infilling of the Spirit. And, you know, that's where the gifts come from, is from the presence and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Now, the next slide is about the group that Tertullian worked with. Um, he, Tertullian was one of the most brilliant scholars of the early church. And you had this group, actually they were over in Asia Minor, uh, which today is Turkey, and they started having revival. They started having this outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And man, people were prophesying, and it really upset some of the, uh, the churches that had gotten really regimented and institutionalized, that here's, here are all these formal churches, and now there's this group over here having Holy Ghost outbreaks. And so a lot of the traditional churches started condemning this group called the Montanists. And um, a modern scholar says it is probably safe to say that Montanism was the first charismatic renewal within the church and that it sought to bring revival to a rapidly hardening ecclesiasticism. In other words, when the church was getting real religious and getting into rituals and legalism and formalism. You have this outbreak of the Holy Spirit. And the Montanists were the group that Tertullian said, here's what it would be like. Was anybody around like in the 60s and 70s when the charismatic renewal started? Um, you know, all these denominational churches were saying, man, what's going on? All these people, you know, they're leaving our church and they're going over where all these people are raising their hands. And man, the charismatic movement got criticized. It'd be like, it would be like if he didn't, but if Billy Graham had come out and said, hey, what the charismatics are experiencing, that's the real deal. That's what Tertullian did. He was one of the most respected scholars of the entire church around that whole Mediterranean world. And he came out and said, hey, what these Montanists are experiencing is the real move of God. Because you've always had this battle. You have it today between traditional churches and charismatic churches. It's, how many of you know there's nothing new under the sun? History 
History just keeps repeating itself. So after the Montanus, we come to another really important early church guy named Origen. He was from, he was an Egyptian. He was from Alexandria. And Origen, um, to give you an idea, I want you to know these people a little bit. They're, they're, Origen's father was arrested when Origen was 18. And Origen's father was arrested for preaching the gospel and was sentenced to die. As an, stop and think about that. You're 18 years old and your dad's just been arrested for preaching the gospel and they're going to put him to death. You know what Origen did as an 18-year-old boy? He told his mom, he said, Mom, he said, uh, I'm going to go turn myself in. I'm going to die with dad. I, I'm going to give, if my dad's going to be a martyr, I'm going to be a martyr. If he's going to give his life for Jesus, I'm going to give my life for Jesus. I'm going to die with my dad. That's like, stop and think about that. How many people are willingly going to go turn themselves in to be put to death because they believe in Jesus? Do you know what his mom did? That night, his mom hid all of his clothes. He couldn't go. He couldn't go turn himself in. He was so mad, but his mom hid all his clothes, so his dad died alone. But Origen went on and lived. Thank God he lived. He became a really important figure in the early church. And um, But Origen said this. He said, some give evidence of their having received this faith, uh, through this faith, a marvelous power by the cures which they perform, invoking no other name over those who need their help than that of the God of all things and of Jesus, along with the mention of his history. I thought that was interesting. So, in other words, when these guys would pray, they wouldn't just say, in the name of Jesus, be healed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, who was born of the Virgin Mary, who lived a sinless life, who performed miracles and healings, who who died on the cross. You know, give the devil a little history lesson. You know, uh, the name of the name of God and of Jesus, along with a mention of history, for by these means, we, too, have seen many persons freed from grievous calamities and from distractions of mind and madness and countless other ills, which could not be cured neither by men nor devils. Now, so origin, I notice he died in 253. So we're we're at least 150 some years after the death of the last apostle, and are these guys acting like miracles have ceased? That God doesn't do these things anymore? See, it's, and these guys, I'm not pulling out unknown, obscure weirdos from church history. These are the most respected leaders of the early church. We go to um, our next guy. This guy's from Rome, Novation. And he wrote a book on the Trinity... Uh, that was really powerful. And in that book on the Trinity, um, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. And he said, indeed, this is he, the Holy Spirit, who appoints prophets in the church, instructs teachers. What's this next phrase? Directs tongues, brings into being powers and conditions of health, carries on extraordinary works, furnishes discernment of spirits, incorporates administrations in the church, 
establishes plans, brings together and arranges all other gifts there are of the charismata, the charismatic gifts, and by reason of this makes the church of God everywhere perfect in everything and complete. So now here's what we're seeing. We have these things happening in France. We have these things happening in Italy and Rome. We have these things happening across northern Africa. The entire Mediterranean world where the gospel first spread, it, they're all as late as 258. They're all experiencing all these things still. None of it stopped. Now you have some groups that aren't, aren't operating it anymore. Just like today, you can have one church that's lifting up their hands, worshiping God, praying for the sick, and down the road you have another church. We don't believe in that. You had some of that back then too. But, but you have wherever He was welcome, wherever He was given liberty, the Holy Spirit is still operating. Okay? Next slide. This guy, I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but it doesn't matter because church history doesn't remember him by that last name. You know what they call Gregory in church history? Gregory the Wonder Worker. Gregory the Wonder Worker. That's his formal last name. And that it may even mean Wonder Worker in some Latin or something like that. But Gregory was based over in Asia Minor, which is today Turkey. And... Um, he ministered in a city called Neo-Caesarea. And uh, the the story on that is that when he went to that city, there were only 17 Christians there. But when he left that city, there were only 17 non-Christians there. That he, he so impacted the city, and he really did have a healing ministry. Uh, one of the uh, early church fathers, Basil of Caesarea, wrote, A crowd of people were pressing at the door of Gregory, the old, those demon-possessed, those unhappy in all respects, to whom he was in turn. Notice what he did. What's the first thing he did? Preaching. <laughs> Preaching. Questioning. Exhorting. Healing. It was his manner to bring the people the gospel. This is so important to me. This was written a couple, you know, 1800 years ago. It says the people were seeing the power of God as long as they were hearing him speak. Notice the power is connected to the word. The power is connected to the gospel. Gregory had the assistance of the Holy Spirit, a formidable power over demons. It would take a long time to relate in detail the miracles of this man who by reason of the superabundance of gifts that the Spirit was producing in him, such as works of power and signs and prodigies, was proclaimed a second Moses even by the enemies of the church." Isn't that amazing? And, you know, this guy, now we're moving up to 270 A.D. Um, we continue on. Our next slide is a guy named Anthony. I always liked him because my name's Anthony and his name's Anthony, so have some kinship with him. Anthony, does anybody beside me think he looks weird? Let me, yeah, the, the beard. Let me comment. I don't know if any of you have been thinking about these pictures of all these guys. Number one, I don't know if, if these pictures are really accurate or not. These are artists' impressions. Maybe some of them are, you know. But 
some people, my wife mentioned, she said, Tony, you might mention, especially the ones that are in all this hyper-religious garb, you know, if, if, if you're from a certain type of background, that may be offensive to you, or, or maybe you don't care, whatever, but, um, you know, don't let any of the artwork bother you. We don't know if they dress like that or not. This, this is just some artist's impression. But Antony was a monk. And I'll be honest with you, I always thought the monks were weird people. They were antisocial. They just wanted to go off and live in the wilderness. They wanted to live in the desert. They wanted to, you know, live in caves. They wanted to isolate themselves from society. I had some, those were my perceptions of the monks. Uh, a lot of times they were called the desert monks. And they would just go off and they'd get away from society. But here's what was happening. When I studied this, I began to understand a little bit better. Many churches were starting to get really corrupt about this time. Look, what I'm doing is I'm hitting mountain peaks. And, and there were some really good things going on in the church, but there were also some bad things going on in the church. Especially, we're going to find especially when, when, when Christianity not only became legalized, but when it became the official religion of the Roman Empire, boy, it really got corrupt then. But some churches were very corrupt and some clergy were really corrupt. And the cities were very corrupt. And so what happened is that you had people, the more that Christianity got institutionalized, the more that some people said, we don't want to be a part of this. And they would go off into the desert. You have people up here that just wanted to get away from city life. and You have a monastery by you. Okay, so I don't know what any of them were like today, but but in the earliest days, some of these people who went away from the church and went away from the city were really holy, godly men. And they would form these communities. Now, you know, could they get corrupt just like everything else? Sure. But many of the early ones in particular, they were, they were charismatic believers who believed in the fullness of the operation of the Holy Spirit. And they basically were not welcome in these highly religious, highly institutionalized churches. Antony was one like that. And, um, Athanasius, one of the great early church leaders, said, Through him the Lord healed the bodily ailments of many present and cleansed others from evil spirits. He continued, Anthony not only healed by commanding, healed not by commanding, but by prayer and speaking the name of Christ, so that it was clear to all that it was not he himself who worked, but the Lord who showed mercy by his means and healed the sufferers. So that, now we're getting into 350 AD, uh, when he died. Now keep in mind, Antony was a desert monk. Um, the church, all persecution against the church stopped in 313 AD. Well, it happened when the persecution stopped. If you were, a, if you were an early believer and your relatives were being burned at the stake and thrown to the lions, you'd be so thankful that the persecution stopped. I mean, it's a good thing that persecution stopped. What happened when persecution stopped and, and the church became the favored religion, all of a sudden people started pouring into it who were not born again. 
And the church, uh, pagan culture started coming into the church. And that's why you had people like Antony pulling away from and doing some of these what we call monastic things. So we move on. Hillary. Hillary was also from France. And um, he said, when the words of life are spoken or when there is understanding of divine knowledge, when by faith we stand inside the gospel. I love the way these guys emphasize the gospel. By faith we stand inside the gospel. When healings and miracles are performed, uh, when by prophecy we are taught of God, when spirits, holy or evil, are discerned, when sermons in foreign languages are signs that the Holy Spirit is active. Let me stop right here. Well, let me read the next. When interpretation makes intelligible the sermons in foreign languages. They're talking about something that has almost totally been lost to us today. For example, I'm getting ready to head um, you know, on this 35-day trip. Now, in Zambia, they speak English. Um, but when I'm in Lebanon, I'll, I'll have Arabic interpretation. Uh, when I'm in Munich, I'll have German interpretation. When I'm in Sicily, I'll have Italian interpretation. Um, I, I don't know if I'll have more, but I'll have an interpreter standing right beside me. So, you know, I have never, in, in all the nations I've preached, and I've never had to stop and think about, you know, how do I communicate with these people? Because I've always got an interpreter. But, you know, some of the early Christian missionaries didn't have that. And, and Greek was a universal language. If you were in the West, a lot of people spoke Latin. But occasionally they would have interactions with certain groups that had their own dialect. And there, and, and there are numerous instances recorded in church history where some of these early missionaries would encounter a group of people and they did not speak the same language. There was no interpreter. And what would happen in several cases, what he's describing, when sermons in foreign languages are signs that the Holy Spirit is active. When interpretation makes intelligible the sermons in foreign languages. You had recordings of this amongst those early missionaries where that would be a... That's obviously not the form of tongues that we think of that's a personal prayer language. You know, he that speaks in an unknown tongue speaks not unto men but unto God. But this would be a case where literally um, you had individuals meeting people cross-culturally and God would enable the people to hear in their own language what the person... It was a supernatural. You know in 1 Corinthians 12 it says diverse kinds of tongues, not all tongues are the same. Some tongues is a prayer language. Some tongues is just for a message in a church, tongues and interpretation. But other times, tongues was like on the day of Pentecost when people heard in their own language people declaring the wonderful works of God. This is being referred to as late as the 360s. Okay, And then he goes on to say, in all these gifts... The presence of the Spirit is manifested in concrete effects. If the gifts are effective and profitable, then let us make use of such generous gifts. We are inundated with gifts of the Spirit. Isn't that powerful? How many of you didn't know you had some of these brothers in the Lord? 
But see, this is our heritage. See, before I really started studying church history, I know, well, John died, and then, you know, well, then later Martin Luther started the Protestant. I didn't know anything about what happened between the last apostle and Martin Luther. And there's some rich stuff here in church history. Next slide. Um, Martin of Tours. This is also a Frenchman. Uh, the... Uh, I'm trying to remember who said this. Uh, the gift of accomplishing cures was so largely possessed by Martin that scarcely any sick person came to him for assistance without being at once restored to health. This fact, too, ought not to be passed over in silence. That threads from Martin's garment or such as had been plucked from sackcloth which he wore wrought frequent miracles upon those who were sick. For by either being tied round the fingers or placed upon the neck, they very often drove away diseases from the afflicted. What does that remind you of? Paul. That cloths were taken from the body of Paul, laid upon the sick. And even, you know, if you really want to think about it, when the uh, the woman with the issue of blood said, if I can just touch the hem of Jesus' garment, there's something about cloth. I don't know what it is, but there's something about cloth that can, in some cases, can retain the anointing of God. And when it's t- placed you know, upon a sick person or they take hold of it with faith, that same anointing is activated in their body. And this was going on in France with Martin of Tours. Uh, next slide. Basil of Caesarea. They said of him that he probably understood the working and operation of the Holy Spirit more than any of the other early church fathers. But it was said of him that the Spirit is, he said, the Spirit is present in prophecy, healings, and under other wonderful works, all of which are still to be found. See, I don't understand how anybody can say, no, all this stuff stopped with the last apostle. You can't read church history and believe that. It just isn't isn't true. Contradicts all the evidence, all the historical evidence. We move on to... Now, this guy, I need to talk to you about him a little bit. I think he was happier than he's portrayed here. John John Chrysostom. He, he was named... Uh, I think Chrysostom means uh, golden-tongued or silver-tongued. I can't remember which. Because he was such a powerful, eloquent preacher. He was the pastor of the church of what today is Istanbul, Turkey. I need to give you a little history here. I'll try to keep it interesting and light. When Constantine, have you ever heard of Constantine? When he became the Roman emperor uh, in the early 300s, his mother Helena was a devout Christian. And Constantine becomes the emperor. And so one of the first things he does in 313 A.D., he signs what is called the Edict of Milan. The Edict of Milan. And the Edict of Milan said, we will never persecute Christians again. No more persecution of Christians. And so... um, uh, all the persecution stopped. And he, here's another thing he did. How many of you know Rome was the headquarters of the Roman Empire? That makes sense, doesn't it? Rome is the headquarters. He, he decided, I don't want the headquarters to be in Rome anymore. 
So he moves the capital of the Roman Empire across the Mediterranean Sea all the way to what today is Istanbul, Turkey. It'd be like today, it'd be like, imagine the President of the United States says, we're not going to, Washington DC is not going to be the capital anymore. We're going to move it to Denver. And Denver is going to be the new capital of the United States. That's what he did. And it actually turned out to be a really smart decision because the Rome, Rome fell a couple hundred years later to the barbarian invasions from the north. But what became Constantinople, Istanbul, it did not, it, it did not fall for, what year was it? Maybe like a thousand years later to the Muslims. So if he had kept the Roman Empire in Rome, it would have totally fallen. But because he moved it, it basically, uh, the Roman Empire to maybe not its full strength, but it lasted much, much longer because he'd moved the headquarters. Okay. In 380, uh, 381, another emperor made Christianity not just tolerated. He didn't just, Constantine just said, we're not going to persecute the Christians. He did make it a favored religion, but he didn't make it mandatory. But in 381, another emperor comes along, I think it was Theodosius, and he says, hey, Christianity is the official religion of the Roman Empire. Well, what would happen today if there was a decree that everybody in the United States, you're now a Christian? You can't do that. People don't become Christians because of a governmental decree. How do people become Christian? By being born again. They repent. And so what happens is now... There's all kinds of social and political and financial advantages to being in the church. So people start joining the church and participating in the church. They've never been born again. They've never repented from anything. They still have all of their other gods and goddesses. And they come flooding into the church. And this is where, you know, things really go downhill in Christianity. The church really got corrupt. But here's the thing. You've got some people like John Chrysostom who, who hated the corruption and who stood up for the truth no matter what. Now, he got run out of, of Constantinople twice. He got banished from the city twice because he stood up for what was right. He refused to go with all the political correctness. But he saw the church get infected with horrible corruption. Now, here's what he said. He said, Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you to be ignorant. Now, stop right there. What did he just do? Who did he quote? What chapter did he quote? 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul goes through all the gifts of the Spirit. He quotes the first sentence of that chapter. And then you know what he says once he quotes that? He says, this whole passage is very obscure. Meaning, we don't have any idea what that... Something that's obscure means I don't know what it is. Can't tell what it is. This whole passage is very obscure. We don't know what that means anymore. 
But the obscurity is produced by our own ignorance of the facts referred to and by their... What's, what does it mean when something, that a cessation or when something has ceased? I mean, they, ha- they don't have them anymore. Now, some, I think they're not real honest scholars, will say, see, by this time all the gifts of the Spirit had stopped. That's not what he's really saying. He's saying, we don't know about these things anymore because we're ignorant. And he says, and they, we don't have them anymore. Uh, being such as then used to occur, but now no longer take place. And he said, the present church is like a woman who has fallen from her former prosperous days. In many respects, she retains only the symbols of that ancient prosperity. She displays, in fact, the repositories and the caskets of her gold ornaments, which she is, in fact, deprived of wealth. The present church represents such a woman, only the tokens of the gifts of the Spirit remain of those ancient times. So here's what he was saying. He was saying, no, we're not having the gifts of the Spirit anymore. But it's because we're ignorant. And it's because we have fallen. And basically, he's saying, we don't have these things anymore because we're backslid. If you want to put it real blunt, we don't have these things because they're backslid. He's not saying we don't have these things because God doesn't want them for us or God doesn't have them for us. He's saying we've gotten so religified and institutionalized and, and, and all this that we're not experiencing these things anymore. But notice when he died, 407. See, he's ministering in that period where no longer are Christians being persecuted, but now it's popular to be a Christian. It's financially advantageous to be a Christian. And and people were bringing all their corruption into the church. And he is saying, yes, these things have ceased, but he's not saying they've ceased because the Holy Spirit wanted them to be ceased. He's saying they've ceased because we're backslid and we're ignorant. Now, he died 407. He's, he's, he's in the headquarters. He's in the capital city of where Christianity has been made the official religion of the empire. So he's feeling this because he's right there. But, but here's what we're going to do. We're going to leave Istanbul, Turkey. Today it's Turkey. And what we're going to do is we're going to go down across Israel. We're going to go across Africa to a place that today is Algeria. Okay? And our next slide is Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo. Now, notice when he was, he was 354 to 430. And he said, even now, therefore, many miracles are worked. I cannot record all the miracles I know, and doubtless several of our, we would say today, church members, when they read what I have narrated, will regret that I have omitted so many which they, as well as I, certainly know. So, while in the capital city, John Chrysostom was saying because of our corruption, we're not having the gifts of the Spirit anymore. 
go over to Algeria, northern Africa, and Augustine says, we're having so many miracles, I can't record all of them. Now, if you know the details of it, he recorded 70 specific miracles that he and his, that he had seen in his church and his congregation and his church members and so on. And in that he's written 70, but he's complaining about the fact there's so many more that I can't write. You know what he's saying? What he's saying here is this. Many of my church members are going to be upset with me because I didn't write about their miracle. But I can't write about all of them, so I'm just going to record some of them. He wrote 70, dear heavens. Now, can I tell you something interesting about Augustine? He didn't always believe in miracles. Number one, here, St. Augustine, Florida. Augustine is like after the Apostle Paul and before Martin Luther. Augustine is like the most important theologian of the church from Paul to Luther. I mean, he is, he is a giant in theological, in theology world. He had been what we would call a cessationist. He didn't believe in miracles until they just started happening like crazy. And when, when he finally changed his view, he said, you know, I used to not believe in this stuff. Six years before he died, he wrote a book. And the name of the book was Retractions. Do you know what a retraction is? It's where you take something back. And he, he said, what he did was he said, man, I've been wrong about some things. I, I, I taught some things that aren't right. And one of the things he had to retract was his position on miracles and healings and the supernatural. And six years before he dies, he writes, and you know one of the things he said, he said, I shouldn't have had that position because he said, I did see a blind guy get healed up in Milan when he had been up in Milan with Ambrose. He said, I, he said, I shouldn't have, but he said, I still held that position. But then he, he's writing about all these miracles now. He just changed his position in the last six years of his life. And yeah, I lived 18 years and didn't believe in miracles, and then all of a sudden I started seeing them, and I thought, wow, you know, I had to retract, you know, I used to believe that God didn't do these things, but now I believe. People have had this happen all the time. There, there is a, there's a seminary in the United States called Dallas Baptist Theological Seminary. It's one of the most, you know, highly respected and all that, and, and they traditionally had a position that was not very friendly or favorable toward charismatics. And and maybe they still, I don't know where they are today, but what happened is a couple of their seminary professors got filled with the Holy Spirit. And one of them wrote a book called Surprised by the Power of the Spirit. And so you always have these these cases where people, they, they have an anti-position but they're, they're really, they're honest. They're sincere. They've just never experienced it. They've always been told these things aren't for today. But then all of a sudden, God shows up and just messes up their theology. And that's what happened to Augustine. And so he ends up at the end of his life saying, I used to not believe in this, but now I've seen so many, I can't even record them all. I think that's pretty powerful. So now we're into this age of the church where 
you know, you've got some elements of the church that are embracing the supernatural. You've got other elements of the church that are steeped in traditionalism and ritualism. So, but let's move on from Augustine. Benedict. How many of you know the Pope before Francis was named Pope Benedict? Well, he named himself after this guy. The original Benedict. Um, Benedict often cured their sick, relieved the distressed, and is said to have raised the dead on more than one occasion. We move from Benedict to another pope. How many of you here used to be Catholic? Or maybe you you still... Okay, a lot of ex-Catholic folks here. This is one of the popes. This is one of the popes. Now... um, I know the very fact that you're a part of this church now means that maybe you've changed some of your beliefs and so on. John Calvin, do you know who John Calvin is? He was he and Martin Luther and Zwingli led the Protestant Reformation. John Calvin said, and and the reform. How many of you know the reformers did not like the popes, and they did not like the institutional church. But how many of you know the popes didn't like the reformers? And the, reform, the, the popes didn't like the Protestant movement or anything. But John Calvin said that Gregory the Great was the last good pope. I don't know one way or the other. I'm just saying what John Calvin said. He would have known it a lot better than I would. But Gregory the Great was very evangelistic. He was very missions-minded. And Gregory the Great said, now generally... We see holy men do wonderful things, perform many miracles, cleanse lepers, cast out demons, dispel bodily sicknesses by touch, and predict things to come by the spirit of prophecy. That was one of the popes, Gregory the Great. Calvin would have said things went really downhill from there. But but let me show you another guy. Next slide. One of the missionaries that Gregory the Great sent out was a guy named another Augustine, but different, different Augustine. This is Augustine of Canterbury. Canterbury is in England. And um, this is what Gregory said about him, this missionary that he had sent out about Augustine. He and those who have been sent with him are resplendent with such great miracles in the said nation, that's England, that they seem to imitate the powers of the apostles in the signs which they display. More than 10,000 English are reported to have been baptized. That's pretty good, isn't it? And he said, he went on to say, the English by outward miracles are drawn to inward grace. Isn't that wonderful? See, that's what miracles were designed for. They were designed to call people to something internally. You know, if you drive by, you know, yesterday I have to make a confession. I actually, I lied to Pastor Bernie. I said that when I got off the interstate that I was kidnapped and that I was dragged into In-N-Out Burger and forced to eat a double-double. Bernie, I lied. Nobody kidnapped me. I know that's... He knew I was kidding, you know. But when I saw the In-N-Out sign, when I saw the In-N-Out sign, how many of you know the Bible talks about signs? 
what is it? What do you think that I pulled into the parking lot and I went and I just stood under the sign? I love this sign. No, the sign is to tell me there's something inside. I don't sit there and adore the sign. I, I, the sign gets my attention and it tells me I need to go in the restaurant and I need to say, I want a double-double with tomato only. No, that's, anyway, but, but Augustine or, or Gregory said, uh, the English by outward miracles are drawn to inward grace. That's one thing we always have to keep. When God does something, signs, wonders, and all that, don't ever get caught up worshiping the sign. What's the inward? What's God wanting to do on the inside? And then he went on to say, then acknowledging that Augustine had received the gift of working of miracles, he cautioned him not to be puffed up by the number of them. I think that's pretty amazing. Can I tell you something, Pastor Bernie? Nobody has ever said, hey, Tony... I know you're having so many miracles. Don't get the big head. Isn't that something that somebody would have so many miracles happening that the, the, the spiritual leader would say, hey, stay humble. Stay humble. You know, God's using you. So anyway, let's do this. Let's take another break. So here's a little bit more about Antony. Um, he was born into wealth in Egypt. At 18, his parents died, leaving him a fortune. He heard a sermon about Jesus' words to the rich young ruler. He gave everything to the poor and moved to the Libyan desert. In addition to his healing ministry, um, Athanasius wrote, their solitary cells in the hills were like tents filled with divine choirs, singing psalms, studying, fasting, praying, rejoicing in the life to come, and laboring in order to give alms and preserving love and harmony among themselves. So that's how that started. I don't know, any, I know nothing about what it's like today, um, but that's how it started. Also, I want to tell you, Augustine, the original Augustine, Augustine of Hippo in northern Africa, Algeria today, he wrote about something, and, and scholars have always said, we don't know what he was writing about, but he called it jubilation. And he, he described it in certain ways, and scholars always say, well, we don't know what he's talking about, but when charismatic and Pentecostal scholars look at it, they say, he's talking about singing in the Spirit, is what Augustine was talking about. He called it jubilation. So anyway, but um, <clears throat> let's skip one more and skip that one. I'm going to uh, eliminate a few. Let's skip that one also. <clears throat> I'm cutting a few out just to uh, make sure I get as much in as we can here. Peter Waldo. He was not, had nothing to do with the game, Where's Waldo? But that's kind of a funny name. Uh, he was a Frenchman. He was a businessman in Lyon, France, like several of these people. I skip, one of the ones I skipped over was a French guy. Um, but Peter Waldo, notice when he was born, 1140 to 1218, um, he essentially had a Reformation movement to try to reform the church. Hundreds of Luther was, did his act that's called the beginning of the Protestant Reformation in 1517. But notice Peter Waldo really had a 
a reformed message uh, that focused on the gospel, on Bible reading, um, you know, that went against many of the, you know, the doctrines that got developed over different centuries that the, the institutional church had. But Peter Waldo had a, a very solid, uh, in there, and there was a movement there called the Waldensians. And they continued as a group until the time of the Protestant Reformation, and they basically got absorbed into it and embraced it. They were embraced by the Reformers. But they had, in their doctrinal statement of faith, they had this, therefore concerning the anointing of the sick, we hold it as an article of the faith and profess sincerely from the heart that sick persons, when they ask it, may lawfully be anointed with anointing oil by one who joins them in praying that it may be efficacious or effective to the healing of the body according to the design and end and effect mentioned by the apostles. And we profess that such an anointing performed according to the apostolic design and practice will be healing and profitable. So they had a, they had a, a, a doctrine of healing. They didn't just have it happen occasionally. I mean, they wrote it down and said, boy, this is one of our anchor beliefs. This is a solid doctrinal statement of faith for us. We move from Peter Waldo. We're going to jump ahead a couple centuries to Martin Luther. And, um, I don't know how much you know about Martin Luther. He was quite a guy. Um, you know, he was a monk. And, um, you know, he he was obsessed, always thinking that, you know, he wasn't good enough for God. And because of his training and his religious upbringing, to be right with God meant to do everything, you know, perfect. And he was he would spend hours in confession, you know, confessing his sins because he was so guilt ridden. One time, his his spiritual father, uh, the priest that he was confessing to, told him, he said, Martin, you've been here confessing to me for two hours. And he said, you've not even confessed any sin that is the least bit interesting. <laughs> he said, don't come back until you have something really significant to really confess. That's, you know, some people are that guilty. They're just so condemned. And um, he went to Rome. You know, he became a monk and a priest and all that. And he went to Rome and he thought that was going to help his faith. But what he saw there really disturbed him. Uh, he saw massive corruption. Um, you know, he saw brothels that were just for the priests. Um, he saw um, he saw all these religious works where and he actually crawled up his hands and knees on this stairway in Rome. Uh, I've been there and, and today people are still crawling up it on their hands and knees and they do a, some confessional either a our father or hail Mary, something and and for every every deal that their knees touch they stop and they do the re- religious ritual then when they get to the top for every step they're supposed to get like 19 years off of purgatory or something like that and he did all this stuff and you know here's here's this little thing you go pray before it it has a splinter from the real cross and of course everything's connected to money 
you know, you, you have to give an offering and then you pray in front of this splinter from the cross, supposedly. Or here's a little thing and it's supposed to have in it. I know this is weird, but it's supposed to have in it a, a, a drop of milk from the breast of Mary. And you, you pray before it. And then, you know, and, and Martin Luther goes to Rome and he's thinking, man, this stuff is just superstition. This stuff is, you know, and... uh uh, you know, he kind of joked about because all these churches all over Europe, everything had gotten so, you know, religified. And he said, you know, there's enough splinters from the original cross to build Noah's Ark. You know, he, he said, made statements like that. He was just really, really turned off by all that. And um, but he, he crawls up his hands and knees on this stairway um, and. Um, he gets up to the top and he, he was doing it for his dead uncle to get his uncle out of purgatory, supposedly. And he stands up and he says, who knows if this is true? You know, there's, it's all, there, there's nothing in the Bible about any of this. And, and it really, the doubts then that, you know, kind of drove him back to the Bible. And it was in the Bible that he found the truth that he believed really set him free. The just shall live by faith. We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace through faith. And, and it, it, it started now that understood all the way back to Peter Waldo. Um, there was a guy, I don't know that Waldo was put to death for his faith, but other like Savonarola in Italy, uh, Wycliffe in England, um, uh, John Huss from Czech Republic. There were several guys who tried to start a reformation to reform the church, but they were put to death for and but Luther had the protection of a German prince, so they couldn't get him to kill him, and that's why the the Reformation finally took root and got traction and everything under Martin Luther. But his he had some experiences and he said often it has happened and still does that devils have been driven out in the name of Christ. Also, by calling on His name and prayer, the sick have been healed. So he had some experiences along these lines. He said, now he had an associate named uh, Friedrich Myconius. He had another associate named Philip Melanchthon. And both Melanchthon and Myconius said that they were on the verge of death and that Luther prayed for them and they were healed and brought back from death's doorstep. But Myconius wrote Luther a letter and basically just said, hey, Martin, you know, I, I'm about to die and it's been great knowing you. It's a you know, privilege to work with you. He is in a different city. And, and the letter that Luther wrote back is so fascinating. He said to Friedrich, he said, I command you in the name of God to live. Because I still have need of you in the work of reforming the church. The Lord will never let me hear that you are dead, but will permit you to survive me. For this I am praying. This is my will. And may my will be done, because I seek only to glorify the name of God. Can you believe that letter? Now, either... Pastor Bernie, if that is not the gift of faith, see, I compare that to, you know, the things I heard, you know, growing up in church. Well, Mary's in the hospital. Lord, be with Mary. You know, 
And but this is I command you to live, you know, this type of thing. Uh, God will never let me hear that you're dead. And, and, and what happened is Myconius not only got healed, but he outlived Luther. Luther never heard of the death of Myconius because Luther died before Myconius did. Uh, but see, it was that kind of boldness and that type of thing. Now, I do need to tell you that many of the reformers, especially you go over to Switzerland, and um, uh, Luther led the Re- Reformation in Germany. Another guy named Swingley led the same type of Reformation in Switzerland. And right at the tail end of, of Zwingli, there was John Calvin. Calvin was really down on miracles and down on, and, and here's the reason. They had seen so many things coming out of, see, I've hit, I've hit high points for you today, but there were many things that were being promoted in that day and age that had to do with praying to dead saints, praying in front of relics, you know, all these things, you know, and, um, and, and, and they had all these claims of all these things. And I think, I think there were some very legit, you know, like these the very legitimate healings th- through many of these people. But there were also a lot of bogus things that were so based on superstition and indulgences and relics and all that, that what John Calvin did was he just kind of went to the other extreme and said, we're not going to have any of that. We're just going to go with doctrine. And for a few hundred years, the the people that followed Calvin, Calvin was so influential that they really shut down. The Catholics were way more open about miracles, even though they had some false stuff mixed in there. The, the people who followed Calvin, see, I grew up Presbyterian, and that's directly out of Reformation theology, and that's why so many of those groups, they just don't have any use for supernatural miracles. They're just following in Calvin's footsteps. And what Calvin was doing, he was, he was reacting to the bad doctrine of the Catholics, but, but he also reacted to some of the, some of the good things they had, because they did have some good supernatural miracles. He kind of threw out the baby with the bathwater. Now there were other reformers beyond Luther and beyond Zwingli and beyond Calvin. Have you ever heard of what are called the Anabaptists? The Anabaptists? There was a group of reformers that were more, they were more radical than Luther and Calvin. They wanted to take, they wanted to reform the church even more, and they, they felt that the Catholic church was wrong, but they said, hey, Luther, Calvin, you're not going far enough. And not only do we need to do away with, you know, all these other things, but but they said, we need to do away with, for example, infant baptism. We need to do away with infant baptism. And we need to do away with the church and the state working together. The church should be totally independent of the state. Well, you know what happened? These radical reformers, the Anabaptists, got persecuted by the reformers. Because they were taking the Reformation too far, they thought. 
And um, but this group of Anabaptists, one of the reasons, you know, the Anabaptists, some of them said the reason that we don't go to the church services of the Lutherans and the Calvin people is because they don't allow the gifts of the Holy Spirit to operate. So even out of the Reformation of Luther, Luther had some personal experiences with supernatural things, but Calvin kind of just put his thumb down on all of it. But then you have this group of Anabaptists, and many of them had profound spiritual experiences, healings, gifts of the Spirit, things like that. But Calvin cast such a big shadow theologically. But you know what else uh, Calvin said was done away? Calvin said, no, all that passed away in the first century. Do you know what else he said passed away in the first century? Evangelism and missions. They did not, they felt that the Great Commission going to all the world and preach the gospel was just for the early church. And a few hundred years later, if you've ever heard of William Carey, uh, he's kind of known as the, the father of modern missions. In the late 1700s, so we're talking 250 years later, William Carey stands up in front of a group of ministers, all of whom were kind of followers of John Calvin. And he said, you know what, I think the Great Commission is for today. I think God is wanting to send me to India to reach the heathen. Do you know what they told him? They said, sit down, young man. If God wants to reach the heathen in India, he can do it without your help or mine. See, they not only believed the gifts of the Spirit had passed away, they believed that the Great Commission had passed away. So the reformers got some things right. You know, we're saved by faith, not by works. But boy, they got some things wrong. They didn't get everything right. And so, what, here, let's move on from Martin Luther. Anybody here are the Quakers? Anybody know any, do you know any Quakers? Indiana, yeah, we had Quakers back there. Um, anybody ever had Quaker oats? That's probably what any, anybody knows, you know, that William Penn's picture is on there. He's a Quaker. Well, the original Quakers, um, they came into play. Of course, they were in England, but they also came into play. William Penn was given a land grant that we know as Pennsylvania. And William Penn was a Quaker. And they gave religious freedom in Pennsylvania. Uh, see, what people don't know about the early days of our country, they think, well, everybody uh, in America, we always had religious freedom. Not exactly. What happened in the early days of our country, the colonies, every, every colony had basically a denomination that ran that colony. And, for example, if you lived in Massachusetts... You had freedom of religion as long as you were a Puritan. In Virginia, you had freedom of religion as long as you were an Anglican. And if you lived in what the colony of Virginia before the Revolutionary War, you paid tax to the government and the government tax supported the state church. 
So if you're a Baptist living in Virginia, your taxes are going to support the Anglican church. Every colony had its state church. And, and I'm not saying there were no churches in the colonies other than, but if you were a Baptist in Virginia, it was not going to be easy for you to have a church because the Anglicans weren't real thrilled about anybody but Anglicans being there. But the two exceptions in the early days of the U.S. were Rhode Island. Uh, Rhode Island was started by a guy named um, Roger Williams. Thank you. It escaped me for a second. Thank you so much. And um, uh, And he got kicked out of Massachusetts because he wasn't a Puritan. And so he went over and started a basically the first Baptist church in America and said, hey, anybody, you can come and start any kind of church here. You know, you don't have to just be, you know. And so Rhode Island really had religious freedom. And William Penn did the same thing in Pennsylvania. They were predominantly Quakers, but they said, hey, anybody can come here and start a church. The other, the other colonies weren't quite as free as we think they were. Now, it changed with the Great Awakening, and that's a whole other long story that I won't go into. But the early days of the Quakers, uh, George Fox, they had a, they were a thoroughly charismatic Pentecostal type group. Do you remember what D.L. Moody said? Every denomination what? Started in revival. Here's what George Fox said. The Lord's power broke forth, and I had great openings and prophecies, and spoke unto them of the things of God, which they heard with attention and silence, and they went away and spread the fame thereof. Many great and wonderful things were wrought by the heavenly power in those days, for the Lord made bare His omnipotent arm and manifested His power to the astonishment of many by the healing virtue whereby many have been delivered from great infirmities and the devils were made subject through His name. Isn't that powerful? This is the Quakers. Think of that next time you get some Quaker oats and you see, you know, William Penn smiling there on the deal for you. Now, he had a friend named Edward Burroughs, the next slide, who described some of those Quaker meetings. He said, we received often the pouring down of the Spirit upon us and the gift of God's holy eternal Spirit as in the days of old, and our hearts were made glad, and our tongues loosed, and our mouths opened, and we spoke with new tongues as the Lord gave us utterance, and as His Spirit led us, which was poured down upon us on sons and daughters. Isn't that amazing? Now, after George Fox, another great leader that we come to, is another guy with a funny name, uh, Nicholas Zinzendorf. And a lot of times when you read about him, you'll see the the full name, which is Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf. I'm just calling him Nicholas Zinzendorf for short. But Nicholas Zinzendorf was the head of a group, later became known as the Brethren, uh, but they were originally known as the Moravians. And the Moravians, they were definitely an exception to the anti-missionary attitude of the Calvinists. 
because the Calvinists just, no, the, the early apostles spread the gospel to all the nations. Our job is just to reform the church. But Zinzendorf had, number one, he had a real personal encounter with the Holy Spirit. Um, his group actually had a, the, the Moravians had a 100 year prayer meeting. 24 hours a day for a hundred years. And literally hundreds, hundreds of missionaries went out to all different parts of the world as an outreach of the Moravians. But they totally, listen to this. He said to believe against hope is the root of the gift of miracles. And I owe this testimony to our beloved church that apostolic powers are there manifested. We have had undeniable proofs thereof in the unequivocal discovery of things, persons, and circumstances which could not humanly have been discovered in the healing of maladies in themselves incurable, such as cancers, consumptions, which is the old word for tuberculosis, when the patient was in the agonies of death, all by means of prayer or of a single word. But they had a really powerful emphasis on, you know, waiting on God, you know, you know, experiencing the presence and the outpourings of the Spirit. And um, Zinzendorf uh, just, he's not well known in American circles, but he was extremely influential. And one of the people that Zinzendorf influenced in a radical way, is somebody that every American knows, and that's John Wesley. We, If it had not been for Zinzendorf, we probably would have never heard of John Wesley. And then let me explain to that. Let's go to this next slide. Wesley was an Anglican, Church of England. And Wesley was a very religious person. He was an extremely disciplined person. The reason they call them the Methodists is because originally Wesley was so organized and meticulous and structured and disciplined that he was very methodical about everything. But Wesley's early religious experiences are probably today what we would call a person trying to be saved based on their own works. He was very works-oriented. And, and that part of that was his discipline and things like that, which his discipline actually served him really well later in life. How many of you know it's good to be disciplined? But if you think that you're going to be so disciplined that you're going to earn your salvation, you're probably... Well, you're not probably... You cannot earn your salvation. We're saved by grace. And, and, and Wesley actually, a lot of people don't know this, but John Wesley, everybody knows he was from England, but Wesley actually was a missionary to America for three years. And it was a miserable failure. And he actually, he, he was in Savannah, Georgia. Uh, he came there to work. It was an Anglican outreach to the Native Americans of the U.S. And, um, he actually had such a miserable experience, he wrote in his journal, he said, I came to America to save the heathen, or the Indian, but who shall save me? 
he just realized, I, I don't need, and, and I need to double check. I meant to double check. It was either on the ship ride over or on the ship ride back. The ship that Wesley was on got in a horrible, horrible storm. And I don't know if you've ever been out on the ocean on a boat in a bad storm, but yeah, it's not a pleasant thing. And you stop and think about, it. we're here in the, um, you know, probably mid 1700s. Actually, that would have been before 1740. Um, you know, no navigational equipment, no electricity. You're on a wooden ship and, um, the, the main mast, you know, that holds the main sail snapped and, um, pretty much people thought they were going to die. And w- here's what happened to Wesley. He found himself afraid of dying. And he's thinking, man, I'm a missionary. I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm a theologian. I'm trained. I'm an Oxford graduate. You know, I have degrees in theology. But he was afraid to die. How many of you know it's not what you have in your head that counts? you got to have it in the heart. And he realized he didn't have it in the heart. He realized, I'm not, I, I don't have any assurance of salvation. I don't have peace. I'm not at peace. And you know what really bothered him? Down in the bottom part of the ship, there was a group of people singing praises to God. It bothered him. Do you know why it bothered him? Because he could tell they have peace. I don't. He, he, he could hear them singing praises. They were worshiping. They had joy. They had confidence. They had assurance. And he's sitting up there just shaking like a leaf, terrified of dying. He writes about all this in his journal. And um, you know who those people down having the praise service were? Moravians. He engaged them. He talked with them. And, and they challenged him, you know, about some things. And, and it, it, it worked on him and it ate at him. And when he got back to England, you know what he did? He went to a Moravian Bible study. And he heard them reading from, um, you know, one of the, they were actually, he was reading, they were reading from Martin Luther's commentary on Romans chapter one, the just shall live by faith. And that's where John Wesley had this experience and he writes about it. He says when he heard all this, he said, my heart was strangely warmed. My heart was strangely warmed. And historians, scholars to this day debate, was that the new birth? Was that just the assurance of salvation? Could it even been kind of a baptism in the Holy Spirit? No, nobody knows exactly, but something happened, something shifted. And and Wesley, can you imagine being a minister, a preacher, and not really sure you're saved? Isn't that something? But that's what Wesley had been. But now something had happened. His heart was strangely warmed. And now he begins preaching with conviction. He, he really, you know, he's hitting on all cylinders now. And Wesley's ministry influenced, I mean... It, it, it transformed British society. Um, and, and his ministry, here's one description. At about three in the morning, as we were continuing instant in prayer, the power of God came mightily upon us in so much that many cried out for exceeding joy. And notice this, and many fell to the ground. 
What happened in a lot of, of Wesley's meetings is that people fell out under the power. And he got criticized for that. You know, one of the guys who criticized him for it was another evangelist named George Whitfield. George Whitfield was the leading minister in the Great Awakening in America, which set the stage for us to have independence from Britain. Before there was a, a, a natural revolution in America, there was a spiritual revolution in America. And it was spearheaded by George Whitfield. Well, Whitfield and Wesley were pretty good friends. And, um, but Whitfield criticized Wesley because Wesley was having all the, people were falling under the power while he was preaching. People fell out of trees. Um, people would, people would get under conviction and just scream out for God to have mercy. And Whitfield thought that is, just, see these guys were Anglicans. So that was just bizarre for them. And Whitfield kind of criticized him and Wesley said, hey, I'm not doing it. And he said, why don't you come preach one of my services? And uh, so so John Wesley gets up and says, hey, this service, my friend George Whitfield is going to preach the gospel to you. And he turned over. Whitfield gets up and starts preaching. People start falling down. People start, you know, and Whitfield said, OK, I'm not going to criticize you again. And um, and then Whitfield started having some of that same stuff happen when he came to America. But anyway, he said, as soon as we were recovered isn't it interesting you have to recover from something? After we, were, As soon as we were recovered a little from that awe and amazement at the presence of His Majesty, we broke out with one voice. We praise Thee, O God. We acknowledge Thee to be Lord. Wesley was dramatically impacted by the Spirit of God. The same power that was working in the Moravians, working healings and miracles there, uh, you know, producing. Stop and think about that. A hundred, a 100 year prayer meeting, 24 hours a day. And see, Wesley got in contact with Zinzendorf and the Moravians, and then Wesley carries it on. And here's an interesting statement by Wesley. Another one. Next slide, if we could. Um, Wesley, of course, is the founder of the group called the Methodists. What people don't realize is that um, there are 35 different denominations today that attribute their founding to the ministry of Wesley. Not just the Methodists, but 35 denominations say we were born out of Wesley's ministry and influence. But look at what he said. He said, I am not afraid that the people called Methodists should ever cease to exist either in Europe or America. But I am afraid lest they should only exist as a dead sect, having the form of religion without the power. And this undoubtedly will be the case unless they hold fast both the doctrine, spirit, and discipline with which they first set out. Now, let me just make an interesting note. I'm, I'm, not, here in, I'm not here to bash anybody. I, I love everybody. I, I want all the groups to do well and things like that. I may not agree with some things that certain people believe, but I'm for everybody. I want to see Jesus exalted. I want to see, and you know, but I, I, I agree with John Wesley. I want to see every group continue with the same spiritual fervor and message and th- that they started with before things come in and get corrupt or so institutionalized and that type of thing. Um, 
the, the United Methodists just had a vote. How many of you heard about that? And um, the vote was that they had all their delegates from all over come together and they had a vote. And here's what they're voting on. Number one, are we going to ordain gay clergy? And number two, are we going to sanction gay marriage? Do you know that John Wesley had to be spinning in his grave? Now, here's the the good news. Here's the good news. The good news is the denomination, all the delegates of all the denomination of all the United Methodists said, no, we're going to stay with the traditional that the Bible teaches, you know, marriage is one man and one woman and we're not going to. But here's the here's the tough news. The only reason that they voted to stay with the traditional biblical view is because they had delegates from other parts of the world. The African delegates voted overwhelmingly, we want to stay biblical. If See, in other parts of the world, South America, Asia, Africa, they are holding fast to the Bible much more than Americans are. Now, we have people in America who hold to the biblical, traditional values, but we have so many people in America that have sold out to secularism, humanism, universalism, and all these other isms. If it had not been for the Africans and the South Americans, if if it had just been an American vote, it it would have totally gone pro-liberal everything. Okay, theologically liberal. And so Wesley's concerns were very much founded. You know, are we just going to be a dead sect? Are we going to stay with the, the biblical core values that we started with? And this is something that every every church in America is going to have to deal with. You know, are we going to hold to the Bible? Are we going to go with what the world is promoting? Here's another statement by Wesley. He talked about, see, now Wesley had, I mean, he had supernatural things happening in his meetings. Wesley prayed for the sick. Uh, he prayed, he prayed, you'll like this, Pastor, Mrs. Pastor. Wesley, one time, he rode his horse, I'm sure as many horses, he was, did this forever, he rode horses 250,000 miles in preaching the gospel. He did everything by horseback. And um, one time, he was on one trip and his horse was having a real problem with the hoof or the foot or ankle, whatever. Um, not good on horse anatomy, but, you know, the, it was limping and that type of thing. And, and Wesley had a really bad headache himself. And he just said, you know what, God? He said, you're able to take care of my horse. You're able to take care of me. And he said, in the name of Jesus, and prayed, and his horse quit limping, and his headache went away. And he, he, he wrote about it. To him, it was significant. He wrote about it. And um, he believed in the power of prayer. And in one place, he wrote about, um, he was preaching in a certain city, and he said, I was invited to go to the home of a Mr. Myrick, who was very ill on the, at the point of death. And he said, I wasn't able to get there for several hours. He said, when I went in to pray for Mr. Myrick, he said, I felt his body. He said, his body was cold. said, he was not breathing. I don't know if he'd been pronounced dead or not, but he said, Wesley said 
to every appearance, he was dead. He said, but I've been invited to pray. He said, I prayed for him and he rose up. And Wesley said, as far as I'm concerned, God raised him from the dead. And we're dealing with people like John Wesley. Now, Wesley was really troubled because he saw so much traditional, uh, religious, ritualistic stuff. He did not see the gospel being preached powerfully. He did not see the signs and wonders. And so he wrote about why these gifts of the Spirit were not operating around in, when, in, in the churches of his day. And here's what he says. He says, it does not appear that these extraordinary gifts of the Holy Ghost were common. Notice he didn't say they never happened. He said they weren't common in the church for more than two or three centuries. We seldom hear of them after that fatal period when the Emperor Constantine called himself a Christian and from a vain imagination of promoting the Christian cause thereby, heaped riches and power and honor upon the Christians in general, but in particular upon the Christian clergy. From this time, they almost totally ceased. Very few instances of the kind were found. Now, uh, let me just interrupt here. I think there were more of them than what Wesley was giving credit for, but he is right. They weren't they weren't frequent, they weren't common. I've hit highlights of them through church history, but it is true, they weren't happening in every church. And and many churches got away from them for decades. But so he goes on to say, the cause of this was not as has been vulgarly supposed because there was no more occasion for them because all the world had become Christians. He said, this is a miserable mistake. Not a twentieth part of it was then nominally Christian. The real cause, meaning the real cause of why miracles ceased, was the love of many. Almost of all Christians, so-called, was waxed cold. The Christians had no more of the Spirit of Christ than other heathens. The Son of Man, when He came to examine His church, could hardly find faith upon the earth. This was the real cause why the extraordinary gifts of the Holy Ghost were no longer to be found in the Christian church, because the Christians were turning heathens again and had only a dead form left. See, Wesley was starting to see an emergence, a re-emergence of the supernatural power of God. It troubled him why there wasn't more of it. That was his opinion. He studied the Montanists, you know, that group that Tertullian talked about, and he said they were real Christians, and, and, and what they had was real. Wesley was contending for a resurgence and a rebirth of, of the things of the power of God. Let's move on to the next slide. Jonathan Edwards, you know, this is the, I think this is the first real American we've talked about. Whitfield ministered in America, but was British. Jonathan Edwards, uh, was part of a revival in New England. And he said the town seemed to be full of the presence of God. There was scarcely a single person in the town old or young, left unconcerned about the great things of the eternal world. In, in that revival, that was the beginning of what's called the Great Awakening in America. Uh, 
Jonathan Edwards was kind of the theological leader. George Whitfield was kind of like the popular evangelist of it. And Edwards, uh, they had so many different kinds of manifestations and things happening in their church uh, that he felt compelled to write a book to help people understand the difference between the spirit and the flesh. And let's go to the next slide. He wrote a book in 1741 called The Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Spirit of God. They had people being slain in the spirit in their meetings. They had people falling into trances in their meetings. They would people that would fall under the power and be stuck there for 24 hours. All kind, every kind of manifestation. So, but how many of you know whenever there's a move of the Spirit, there's some people that are going to do goofy things and get in the flesh and all that. So he wrote a book called The Distinguishing Marks to, to encourage people to stay with the genuine and avoid the, the counterfeit. And he said when it's really the Spirit of God, number one, it's going to exalt Jesus. That should be the number one. Is Jesus being exalted in this? Number two, it's going to work against the kingdom of Satan because Satan's kingdom encourages sin and worldly lust. So when it's really the Spirit of God, it's going to come against sin. It's going to come against the works of the devil. It's going to stimulate a greater respect for the Scriptures. Uh, it's going to be marked by a spirit of truth and it's going to manifest a renewed love of God and man. So that's that Jonathan Edwards, you know, uh, was very influential in the early days of America in our great awakening. Next slide. Uh, Edward Irving back in London. We're jumping back across the Atlantic again. They had, see, people in America think that the first real outpouring of the Spirit with charismatic gifts was Azusa Street. No, there were, the Quakers had that going, uh, long before. There, there was a group in London followed, based on Edward Irving, and here's what he said, because they had charismatic gifts, tongues, healings, everything. He said, if they ask for an explanation of the fact that these powers have ceased in the church, I answer, that they have decayed just as faith and holiness have decayed. Meaning, everything stops. You know, some churches quit reading the Bible. That doesn't mean Bible reading's not for today just because some churches stop it. How many of you know there are some churches that don't advocate holiness at all? They don't, you can do anything and the fact that holiness has stopped doesn't mean that God's not interested in holiness. It just means that people get away from it. And that's what he's saying there. Uh, he says, but that they have ceased is not a matter so clear. He said, up until the time of the Reformation, this opinion was never doubted. See, prior to the Reformation, all the church believed in miracles, pretty much. You know, a, a widespread group of them did. But he said, and to this day, Roman Catholics and every other portion of the church but ourselves maintain the very contrary. To this day, if you get with a group of Catholics and say, Jesus does miracles, nobody's going to argue with you. They still believe in the supernatural. But it's the people that came out from that Calvinistic strain that say, no, this stuff isn't still for today. That's what he's talking about. Next slide. This is a great quote. In reality, the day of miracles has not passed. It is simply that for many people, the day of miraculous faith has passed. That kind of sums up everything we're talking about today. 
Uh, next slide, real quickly. Finney. Charles Finney. You know, Charles Finney as a preacher. David, are you a big Finney fan? You know, um, Finney preached predominantly up in the Northeast. And his revivals were sometimes so impacting um, that entire... All the bars would shut down. All the saloons, the taverns in that town would just shut down for weeks and weeks and weeks. Uh, after one of Finney's meetings, uh, there's an official police report that says since Finney's revival, we haven't had anything to do. Crime. Do we, there's no crime in the city anymore. Now, I'm not saying it stayed like that forever because, you know, people don't maintain. But but the power of God was so impacting. Finney had a guy that traveled with him named Father Nash. And Father Nash was, he was an intercessor. He didn't necessarily even go to all of Finney's meetings. He'd just stay in his hotel and just pray and believe God and intercede and travail in prayer. But Finney had this experience. He says, I received a mighty baptism of the Holy Ghost without any expectation of it, without ever having the thought in my mind that there was any such thing for me, without any recollection that I ever heard the thing mentioned by any person in the world. The Holy Spirit descended upon me in a manner that seemed to go through me, body and soul. I could feel the impression like a wave of electricity going through and through me. Indeed, it seemed to come in waves and waves of liquid love, for I could not express it in any other way. That was, you know, he, he, Finney wasn't just giving information when he preached. He was preaching in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's go to the next slide. Uh, we're going to skip that one. 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 I want to stop at Charles Spurgeon. How many of you have heard of Charles Spurgeon? Probably the most famous uh, English-speaking preacher that's ever lived. Well, Billy Graham's probably more famous now. But Charles Spurgeon was called the Prince of Preachers. He is a, what's interesting, he was a Calvinist. Um, and yet, he had what we would call today the word of knowledge operating through his ministry. Very few people know this, but he wrote about it himself. And, and what, what I'm going to give you a little bit of intro to this slide, he talked about how that there would be times when he was preaching in his pulpit and he said, just out of the blue, he said, my eyes would land on somebody. And he said, when I looked at them, he said, I knew about them. He said, I knew things about them. And he said, and he said, the only way I could have possibly known it was that the Holy Spirit told me. And he said, for example, he said, and this was, this was one of the details he gave, and he said he had this happen at least a dozen times real specifically, and then other times more generally, but it'd be like, okay, I'm Spurgeon, you're sitting there, and all of a sudden, I know what you did last Sunday. You weren't in church. And, um, now this, I, I, I don't, this is just pretend. Um, and, and Spurgeon, Spurgeon would stop and say, last Sunday, and tell the guy everything he had done last Sunday. And, and it wasn't necessarily what he should have been doing last Sunday. I didn't, it wasn't anything embarrassing or whatever. It was just, you know, like in one case he said, you know, you, you worked last Sunday instead of coming to church. 
you opened your business and this is how much money you brought in and this is how much it cost you to have your business open that day. And, you know, uh, it wasn't worth it to miss church. And the person would sit there and think, how on earth did Spurgeon know that? And, and thinking somebody set him up, somebody's communicating. And so here's what Spurgeon said. He said, I could tell as many as a dozen similar cases in which I pointed at somebody in the hall without having the slightest knowledge of the person or any idea that what I said was right, except that I believed I was moved by the Spirit to say it. And so striking has been my description that the persons have gone away and said to their friends, come see a man that told me all the things that ever I did. You know, quoting Jesus, beyond a doubt, or the Samaritan woman, he must have been sent by God to my soul, or else he could not have described me so exactly. And not only so, but I have known many instances in which the thoughts of men have been revealed from the pulpit, and I, I have sometimes seen persons nudge their neighbors with their elbow, and here's his wording, because they had got a smart hit. Today, we would say, because somebody read their mail. Okay? But that's his wording. And and they have been heard to say when they were going out, the preacher told us just what we said to one another as we went in at the door. And Spurgeon had, you know, countless people come to Jesus through his preaching. But on occasion, it was at this to me, this is the word of knowledge. He did. He, he never used that term. But that description is what we would call the word of knowledge today. And he didn't even believe in the gifts of the spirit. Isn't that interesting? But anyway, let's move on to another one. Um, let's skip that one. Let's go to Moody. Uh, Moody, again, the, the great American evangelist. If you start going, you have, you have George Whitfield. Uh, you have Finney. You have uh, Moody. You have Billy Sunday. And then Billy Graham, those would be the all-star evangelists from America. But D.L. Moody, his, his associate, R.A. Torrey, described this. And here's what happened to Moody. Um, he was preaching and a couple little Pentecostal ladies came up to him and said, you know, Moody, you're a good preacher, but you need the infilling of the Holy Spirit. And he didn't quite know what to make of that. But he started thinking, you know, hey, if God has something more for me, uh, then and, and here's what happened. The power of God fell upon him as he walked up the street and he had to hurry off to the house of a friend and ask that he might have a room by himself. And in that room, he stayed alone for hours and the Holy Ghost came upon him, filling his soul with such joy that at last he had to ask God to withhold his hand lest he die on the spot from very joy. He went out from that place with the power of the Holy Ghost upon him. And they said that from that moment, his preaching went to a whole nother level. Okay, let's what is our next slide? I don't even remember Simpson. Uh, let's go to the next slide. William Wade Harris. Let, let me talk about this. This guy was a, an, a, a Liberian missionary, Ivory Coast, and um we're into the 20th century now. He died in 1929. But William Wade Harris had massive amounts of healings and miracles. The whole region was, you know, impacted by the power of God. And um, Mark Knoll, who is the professor of church history at Notre Dame University, said that uh, the converts in the Ivory Coast were not only impressed with the Christ-centered message, 
that Harris preached, but also by the power it was supported with, many healings were reported. And I'm going to give you one final slide and we're going to break for lunch. This same professor, professor of, of church history at Notre Dame, said in much of Africa, where the Christian message was taking root, expectations were commonplace concerning the direct work of the Holy Spirit to heal, protect, illuminate, and encourage. See, because in Africa, nobody ever told them that miracles aren't for today. Nobody ever told them the supernatural had ceased. So they were much more open, and as a result, they received much more freely. And and he went on to say, Noel, the, the Notre Dame guy, said, Pentecostal and charismatic currents have been central in the rapid expansion of Christianity outside the West, with the most rapidly growing churches in Brazil, Nigeria, Korea, Russia, China, and many other nations either explicitly Pentecostal or heavily influenced by charismatic practices in these situations. Pentecostal and charismatic forms of Christian faith flourish by directly confronting pagan gods and animistic spirits as well as by imparting the direct immediacy of God's presence. Do you know what we're finding out, what we're learning is that in America and Europe, see, we're the, we think we're the smartest people on the planet. And we've gotten so smart, we think we're too smart for God. In all the other nations and all the other continents where they're not so full of their intellectual, you know, it goes back to the enlightenment and the age of reason and all that where people decided, well, we don't need God anymore. These other countries are still open to the supernatural. And you know what? They're having far more of the supernatural than Americans and Europeans are experiencing. But it doesn't have to stay that way. Because we can once again hunger and thirst and and position ourselves to believe God, to trust God. And and I really believe that... See, I'm I'm traveling in these other nations and seeing what I think is a greater intensity of power than what we often see here in America. But I think God's bringing the Americans back to get back to the root of Christianity. And we want the kind of faith that they had in the book of Acts when they said, Lord, you know, stretch forth your hand to heal and give us ability, boldness to preach the Word. And I'll tell you, if we get back to New Testament principles, we'll get New Testament results. Amen? Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, we hunger, we thirst for fresh outpourings, renewals, revivals, movements of the Spirit of God. Lord, let us start. Start in our hearts. Start here. Lord, not so that we can be somebody, but Lord, so we can be empowered to be a light and a witness to the world so that we can bring true uh, help and hope and healing to the lost and hurting. Lord, let us be conduits of Your compassion to this generation and demonstrate Your power for the glory of Your name. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more information, visit hdwc.org.